This is from the <coughs> transmission of the light. Case 22. Vasubandhu. One day, Jayata said to Vasubandhu, Even though I may not seek after enlightenment, I do not act contrary to it. Even though I may not be doing prostrations before the Buddha, I am not spiritually negligent. Even though I'm not, I may not be sitting in meditation, I am not lazy. Even though I may not eat just one meal a day, I am not gluttonous. Even though I may not know what is enough, I am not covetous. In my heart, there is nothing that I seek. I call this the way. When Vasubandhu heard this, he realized that wisdom, he realized that wisdom is free from all defilements and all desires. So, we are two weeks into a period of concentrated efforts, anger, efforts aimed to, at deepening our practice and expanding our understanding of the Dharma. So, we took a step, and I think that for the most part, the most of us took a step to enter this intensive period with genuine and sincere interest. Right? Then we have to keep examining that interest, or that genuine interest. And we have to renew it. I could be a day into it, or two weeks into it, and when things happen on a daily basis, things happen, and then those things that happen are threatening our commitments, as sincere as they may be. So a decision, a decision to commit is put to the test daily and it needs to survive changing circumstances and erosion of our habitual ways of acting. As practitioners, we should remember that Challenges come with the territory. It is a package deal. There's no way to avoid challenges. So we shouldn't walk around with an expectation to cruise through, whether it's an Anglo period or life. And we shouldn't be surprised when we're encountering moments of apathy, despair, loss of forward momentum, loss of interest maybe moments of doubts. Did I make the right decisions? Did I take the right, pick up the right commitments? Do I really want to do that? Is it worth it? Is there a better thing to do? I know that this is universal. And yet we are surprised every time we encounter it. I think some more, some less. So it is all there, it's all happening to be practiced, not to be surprised, not to expect or be disappointed. It's there to be practiced. Whatever we encounter is showing up as practice. So we have to show up also as practitioners who are willing to take on what comes. Because essentially this is what we commit to. It's not so much as contents, it's more as, a, as being prepared to take on what comes. It's more of an attitude. And then we put in content. Or life puts in contents for us. Probably more that than what we expect. So it's all happening 
as a swinging door, right? You know, something comes, something goes, tomorrow shows up, it brings what it brings, we are there to experience it. Nothing more, nothing less. This is a good opportunity, maybe a good opportunity to point out that, or to clarify that we have signed up for the cultivation of devotion to practice in its entirety. So we have taken on practice, the attitude to practice correctly. We've taken on uh, the responsibility to, um, to embrace, to embrace what comes through the practice, while practicing, to not judge, to not expect, to not be surprised while being surprised, and to bring okay to that, as is. Otherwise, what would it be? What will we practice? An idea. Fully embrace it without picking and choosing. So to be devoted to practice, what does it mean? What is, what are we devoted to? Is it what we think it is? Because all we have is what we think it is. Because we don't have the next moment. We don't know what the next moment will bring. So if we, if we decide to be devoted to the practice, we're actually deciding to be devoted to not knowing, rather than to be devoted to what we know, what we expect the next moment will bring. That's how we encounter the Dharma first, when we come in from that reality, from that realm. And that realm is being put to test by the practice. So devotion to practice, what is it? Is it about the appearance of what you think a Zen practitioner should look like? Is it about memorizing rituals and quoting sayings of old masters? This is about maintaining daily zazen and attending sangha events. Is it about having, holding on to, or about renouncing, letting go, dropping? So what are we doing when we decide to be devoted to? Where's the contents there? <clears throat> Jayata was a Buddhist teacher in the direct lineage of the Buddha, actually, the 20th generation after the Buddha died. And at the time Jayata arrived at the village where Vas Vasubandhu was, Vasubandhu was already ordained and had a bunch of followers. And it is said that he took only one meal a day and never lay down. Six times a day he made prostrations to the Buddha. He was imputed by the group to, to be chaste and without desires. Perfect practitioner, right? It would seem. Jayata, preparing to lead him to the other shore, as it is said, began by questioning the group. This busy ascetic, the guy you follow, is able to practice morality, but he is, he is, but is he capable of finding the Buddha's path to enlightenment? The crowd replied, our teacher is diligent. Our teacher is actually diligence itself. Why could he not attain realization or the path of the Buddha? Jayata then said, your teacher is far from the path. Even if he were to practice his asceticism for endless kalpas, it would be nothing but a source of vain delusion. 
Doesn't make sense, does it? A perfect practitioner. He follows everything to the ladder. And yet Jayata comes and scolds him. He's not scolding the Buddha's path. He's not scolding the action. He's scolding something else. There's nothing wrong with prostrations. There are no faults in what he's doing. It's just the Jayata is seeing something beyond, beneath. He's seeing an expectation. He's seeing duality of the one who is practicing and the one who is not practicing. Duality of delusion and enlightenment. Past, present, future. I'm on a way to a destination. And by doing what I'm doing, I'm guaranteed to arrive there. It's reminded me of a story I've heard about Maizumi Roshi, who was once traveling in a car together with one of his Dharma successors and, and a third person, a Theravada monk. Theravada monk. On the way, on the way to the, they were on the way to an opening to, of a ceremony, some ceremony of a monastery or some Buddhist center. And uh, they had to keep traveling, otherwise they would be late uh, for the ceremony. And uh, in the Theravada tradition, those who practice, who are devoted, they eat. Uh, up to midday and then they fast from noon until the next morning. It's part of the tradition. So the Theravadan monk was sitting in the back seat. It was I think around 11 o'clock from what I understand and then he started to get nervous because he might not be able to eat before noon. And that would be the end of his eating until the next morning. So he kept urging them to stop, to find a place to eat. But there was no place to stop and uh, they had to keep going and they said, no, we can't do that. We can't take the time to stop and, and find something to eat or get off uh, the highway. And then the guy started to get nervous and started to talk about it. And then at some point, uh, Maizumi Roshi turned to him and said, stop being so precious. Stop being so precious. It's a very interesting thing, you know, and, or, or it's a very interesting uh, advice to stop being so fill in the blank. What do you think is going to happen? Well, you know what's going to happen if you're not going to eat until the next morning. You're going to be very hungry. But what's going to happen if you do eat? Does that mean you're off the path? Does that mean you no longer, you are uh, excluded from the path of realization? Does that mean that the path is rejecting you? Or you're rejecting the path? Those are points to examine. You know, when we look at devotion to practice, so we, have to, we have to understand, we have to ask ourselves, what is it? What is devotion to practice? How does it manifest moment by moment, day by day? Maybe going to church once a week. By going to church once a week, maybe I think I am a practitioner. I am a devout practitioner. I remember growing up in Israel and uh, my grandfather was, was following a path, Judaism. And he would go high holidays, he would always go to the synagogue, he would go on, on Saturday to the synagogue. And uh, I remember I went with him once on uh, Yom Kippur, and I decided to stay there with him 
with them, with my grandmother and my grandfather, and uh, fast and do everything with him. So I went to synagogue and I prayed and I, it was an interesting experience. But it was not more than an interesting experience. And I don't know what it was for him. I don't know if it was more than just something to uphold. He was still dealing with everything in the same way everybody else was dealing with it. It didn't transform him or take him to anywhere else, to any other place. But it was just a thing to do. Because it's been done for so many years, because everybody else in that tradition is doing it and has been doing it for many years. So we should also do it. And I don't think it was more than that. Looking at everybody at, at the synagogue, looking at what they were doing and seeing them before that day, seeing them after that day. It's a day of atonement. You're supposed to atone for all your sins throughout the whole year. And one day, it's a big task. But uh, a day of atonement, asking for forgiveness, or, or atonement as it is, is being at one. So a day of realization, oneness. But what about all the other days? Do they count? Or from the day after that day, you just think, well, next year, I'll do it again. I'll go back to the synagogue and I'll spend the whole day and I'll fast for 24 hours. Until then, I can do whatever I want. The practice is not, the tradition and the practice is not saying that. I just think that we as people often interpret things in that way. Master Shido Bunan wrote in a poem, Die while alive and be completely dead. Then do whatever you will. All is good. Die while alive, and then all is good. Do whatever you want. So first, we have to look at that. Die while alive, before we think that what we are doing will transform us, will take us anywhere else. We have to examine how and why we are doing it. Why are we doing this? We are devoted to a practice that is formless. And yet what we are devoted to is form. What we're holding on to is form. And what Master Shiva Bunan is saying, change it. Work on it from formlessness. Practice. Do it. But do it from a point of non-dualism. From a point of no delusion, no enlightenment. No practice and no, no practice. That's devotion. That's devotion that is essentially contentless. And then into that, we put contents. Our wisdom tradition is very rich and complex. The summit may appear to be too structured, very demanding. And some may find, it, find the structured practice fascinating and even comforting. I think some do. Some find an escape into, in practice. So however we individually feel about the practice, actually has very little to do with what it is. What we feel is only a limited interpretation of that which is limitless. So what we end up responding to comes out of there, comes out of what brought us to the practice at the beginning, rather than the practice itself. 
In other words, what we keep encountering is what brought us to the practice in the first place. It's kind of like we walk around in circles. So there's a gap between what we perceive and what, what is. Although reality itself is gapless, our, our constant and automatic interpretations create an illusion of a gap that forms an illusory reality, which again, we keep going around in circles in that reality. It may look different when we call ourselves practitioners, but it's not different. It is the same. And this illusion is what gives rise to a separate sense of self with all its fears, anxieties, restlessness, dissatisfaction. And what we end up doing is imprisoning ourselves by our own perceptions. Because that's the first thing that appears when we encounter something, including the practice. I'd like to talk for a few minutes about what Buddhism describes as three modes of perception. Direct, as representation, and as mere images. Very important that we look at how we meet the practice. So we don't create an image of it. The first one, direct perception, means non-duality between subject and object. So things are left to be as they are, without personal comments or narration. It means to lose the eyes when seeing, to lose the ears when hearing, and to lose the hand when holding, to lose the nose when smelling, to lose the tongue when tasting, and to lose the mind when thinking. Which is why the Buddha said, those who seek for me in form see me not. In direct perception, there is no seer. The seer is dropped. The ear is dropped. All the ear merges with the sound. You go directly to what is. No filters. No interpretation. you've been practicing for a while, you probably have some sense of what Dogen describes as body and mind of themselves drop away in Zazen. Right? Periods of time when awareness takes over this space and the self is forgotten for a little while. You're there and you're not there at the same time. Undefined reality in which you are an atheist. Undefined, left undefined, and somehow we are okay with living it undefined. For those periods, anyway, moments, moments of bliss. The second mode of perception is what arises in us during daily encounters with people and circumstances. It is what is called the extra the extra that the thinking mind slaps onto naked experiences. You wake up in the morning with a backache and automatically, automatically there is an narration in you commenting, judging, saying something about it, creating a new story or propelling an existing story. Oh, this again. Oh, I know how the day will be. And then the narration begins. Not only that, but it takes a huge chunk of our attention and energy. We're feeding something. There is a backache, and then there is the mental interpretations, representations of it, right? Which have nothing to do 
with the experience of having a backache. It doesn't come with the backache. It is what is added to the experience. And it all arises simultaneously. Right? You can, you can be facing your partner in the morning, your child, your boss. And again, the automatic narration keeps weaving interpretations of what you think or feel about these people or circumstances. And so often we get caught up by our own interpretations and drown in representations of reality. While it is happening right there and then, we are not there. The third mode of perception describes the mental images that float around in our heads and in our minds randomly, or maybe systematically, right? And it projects pictures of items, people, scenarios, not so much as thoughts, more as images. Maybe we dream sometimes while awake or while asleep. And while we dream, we see images, we encounter mental projections. And these images can also feed an ongoing storyline and further remove us from direct perception. So the practice itself, as rigid as it may be, illuminates how we get caught up in the second and third modes of perception and it offers a way to perceive directly without the personal filters we carry. It offers upaya, skillful means, to bypass the stale and habitual and to go directly to the fresh and to the unknown. You know, we, we have a tendency to view reality through personal perception. And that, that tendency extends to how we view the practice itself. It doesn't stop at the doorway when we enter a practice center. We do what we do until we begin practicing, or until we call ourselves practitioners. We do what we do with the practice. Right? Up, up to this moment, and from that moment on, we keep doing the same thing. That doesn't change. We just do it with something different. But it's a habit. I think you mentioned how difficult it is to get out of habits. You were reading from Katagiri Roshi. It is indeed difficult to get out of habits and, and the most difficult of habits is the way of thinking, which of course supports all other habits, the way we think, the way we perceive reality, the way we perceive ourselves. So what we do is left up, left up with an image of practice as essentially, essentially turning medicine into poison, rather than use the practice. And I'm I have to be careful with using the word use. It's not to be used. It's more to practice correctly. Rather than practicing correctly, we are drowning the practice with our perception. Maybe that's better. Drowning the practice without perception. Making something out of nothing. Instead of leaving nothing alone and allowing it to shine brightly. And primarily because we don't find ourselves in that nothing. Because it is contentless, selfless. shines brightly, left alone. Add your own interpretations to it and its light will be deemed.
always shines brightly. It's just that as long as our eyes are occupied by mental reflections, our lives are kept in the dark. And we end up bumping into our own concepts instead of seeing clearly. A few weeks ago, actually Tetsuki and I were at a yoga class at the end, we were just you know, getting ready to go out and um, this woman was talking to a friend and she was sharing with her a story she read in the newspaper about this rich guy who gave up everything and uh, decided to live on the streets with uh, with the trash bag. Right? He, 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 everything he had gave to people, threw away, I don't know what he did with it. And, and she was telling the story and she was saying, I wish one day I could do the same. I wish one day I could give it all up. I have so much stuff and so much burden. And then, you know, we have, again, we have an image of something. We think, well, you know, this guy must be, right? And there's a lot of assumptions there. And I am not, because I'm holding on to things, because I'm attached to things. Thinking by, that by letting go of something, we become unattached. But in reality, we can actually be more attached by, to letting go than by holding on to things. To say that this person is free, is to hold on to, to a, an idea of what freedom is. But if I have to let go in order to be free, I am not free. I'm trapped by letting go. And I can't hold on because I think that by holding on, I'm trapped. What kind of freedom is that? There's the other side of that. Whether we, we practice or we don't practice has nothing, has nothing to do with freedom itself. Freedom does not need practice. It's fine. It's doing just fine. So to, to allow wisdom or freedom or whatever it is we think about, to allow this to penetrate us and to function in our daily life, we have to examine <clears throat> the concepts of practice, what we think it is, what we think it looks like, what we think I look like. Do I look like a practitioner? Neither this nor that. You know, Buddhism has never been about specific appearances. And the practice also does not have to look like anything. It is free of shape and color, free of holding on and letting go, free of existence and non-existence. As the Buddha said, things are not as they appear nor are they otherwise. It's not what we think. It's not what arises in our minds at the moment of encounter. We always feel something, we always think, we always have something to say about everything, which have nothing, has nothing to do with reality itself. There's a con in our, in our testing cons that is asking us to look at greatness and to, to express greatness. And I think it's a very interesting con because every time uh, a practitioner encounters this con, there's a little story there, but the story is not as important as really what is greatness. And everybody has, we all have our interpretation of what greatness is, right? An opinion about it. In most cases, we are not there. At least, you know, if we're humble. 
But this is asking us to drop that, to drop what we think greatness is. To drop the opinion of what it is. It is asking us to let go of a dualistic viewpoint of that which is great and that which is crappy. Can we do that? Can we do that? Whether you practice frustrations or not, whether you are chanting or not. And of course, I'm not saying that we shouldn't chant, we shouldn't practice frustrations. And Jayaka wasn't saying that either. When he was saying, I do not practice frustrations, he wasn't saying there is no one there that is practicing prostrations. Or maybe he was saying there is nobody that is practicing prostrations while I bow. It's that. When you practice prostrations, without not practicing prostrations, then the whole world is bowing. When you sit zazen, and drop away, the whole world is sitting. When you're working with challenges, facing, processing, stepping through challenges, moment by moment, day by day, there's no one else. There is no one who is saying, I don't want this challenge. There's no one who is saying, I prefer somebody else's life. Because there's no one else. Where did I read this? Uh, it's funny, somebody said, be yourself because everybody else is taken. I like that. Be yourself because everybody else is taken. No, there might be different versions of that, but but then again, you know, it is we have to ask: What does it mean to be yourself? Is it a version of what I think a self is? Anyway, to be devoted to a path, to the, the path, does not mean to be devoted to the way you think it's supposed to look like, or to be devoted to an idea of it. I think if that was the case, there will be no path of liberation to speak of, and no practice, or no tradition to practice. We will only transmigrate from one set of ideas to another. Put on different clothing, different hats, different badges. Thinking that's a better one, that's a greater one. Because it matches my idea of greatness. Because I read about it. Somebody told me about it. That's not the tradition. That's the appearance of the tradition. All it is. To be devoted to a practice tradition that at its core is non-binding means to keep examining the mechanism of self-binding and to realize that it is made up. We self-bind. in wide open space. The voice of the inner narrator and, and the flow of mental images may never stop completely. It may never stop completely. I think we have to make peace with that. As much as we want that narrator to 
just stop. May never happen. Which means that from a point of acceptance, we can ask, am I really bound by that voice, by the inner narrator or narration, constant inner narration? Is it holding me back? I think it is, but is it? How? <clears throat> Bring me your sins, you remember. Bring me your mind. Bring, show to yourself how and where are you trapped, by what. By what are we trapped? So the question is, does that inner narration or voices or feelings or whatever is going on in us, does it have to interfere with direct perception or can we, can we see reality as it is while we have constant mental images floating around, constant voice, commenting, judging, liking, not liking. While it's happening, is it possible to see clearly? That's the question, that's the practice. How can we learn to discern between the habitual and the new? While the habitual keeps going in the background, there is the new, there is the fresh. Not after the habitual dies down. While the habitual is going on. At the same time, the fresh is fresh, the new is new. So how do we do that? And the answer to that lies in the way we meet circumstances, situations, people. At the moment of encounter, at that moment lies the answer. But that moment is not, cannot be preconceived, cannot be rehearsed, cannot be practiced. How do you practice the next moment? By practicing this one. How do you practice this one? What are you meeting right now? It has to come back to this over and over and come back to just this. But not just this as, a, as an empty concept. This as, a, as an alive experience. What is this? What's going on? How am I meeting what's going on? Maybe not so much with what, I know I'm meeting it with a very heavy load of thoughts, opinions, judgments, fears, regrets. That's a given. Who doesn't? You're not so unique in that. You're meeting it with all that baggage. And yet, what you're meeting is fresh, is new. Can you choose it? Is it possible to choose it? Being so unpredictable, right? It is wide, it is open, which means you too, in order to meet it accordingly, you too need to be wide, open and unpredictable while you have predictable patterns. Again, at the same time, in Jukai study, this is what we call 
and the precepts, that's what we call the relational perspective, right? We talk about three perspectives. One of them, the, the center one, the, the middle one. The relational perspective, or, or sometimes we call it the compassionate perspective. The appropriate action, right? How to meet the moment appropriately. And that action does not come from adhering to rules. It is born fresh, out of the encounter. And its appropriateness relies on the time, place, people involved, amounts, and overall dynamic circumstances. Which means you will not know until it happens. There is no way to know. The practice does not promise you a map. It's not a GPS. It's just illuminating this. That's all. And the other thing, I think we have an expectation that when the light comes, there'll be no more darkness. Bullshit, I would say. When the light comes, you realize darkness. You realize that we live in the midst of that. And that changes everything. Because you're no longer rejecting what you think you don't like, what you think should not be. And again, that changes everything. Because there's no longer opposition. Coming from, coming from the realm of indirect perception, we hold on to an expectation that a dynamic life will somehow match our fixed mental images of it. And quite often we get disappointed. But in reality, neither the expectations nor the disappointments have anything to do with life itself. That's the extra. That's the added to what's happening. And that is not meeting the moment appropriately. That is covering or showering or dumping something on the moment, on the encounter. A personal label. Personal twist on what is. And it veils, it actually veils that which we are trying to see. Not because it's veiling as much as it is distracting us from what's going on. It is stealing our attention. Direct perception doesn't get rid of mental formation. And it doesn't free us from having to deal with karma and consequences. Looking at freedom from conventional perspective, it would seem that we are working hard to chip away at the wall of delusion so we can finally take it down and reveal naked reality. And maybe we believe that by encountering the Dharma, we have found the best sledgehammer. The one that will actually knock it down. That wall of delusion. It doesn't work this way. Maybe, maybe that's what Vasubandhu believed. When he devoted himself wholeheartedly to upholding all aspects of the practice. Not bearing an inch from the practice. Maybe he thought, he found, the, he found the way. The way to what? The way to finally break through all that stuff I don't like. 
And then came Jayata, right? He saw a great potential and a great gap too. And he pulled the rug from under Vasubandhu's feet. Right? By saying, even though I may not seek after enlightenment, I do not act contrary to it. I am in the midst of it. There is no in and out. There is no up and down. There is no practitioner and a non-practitioner. Even though I may not be doing prostrations, I'm not spiritually negligent. Even though I may not be sitting in meditation, I'm not lazy. Do you think he wasn't meditating? Or maybe you can say he wasn't meditating. That is true. But meditation was going on. Right? It's like the famous koan. In the whole land of China, there are no Zen practitioners, right? And then the monk got up and said, well, what about you? What about all the teachers? He said, I didn't say. That was the teacher. He said, I didn't say that there's no Zen. I just said there are no Zen teachers or practitioners. There is just sitting. When you stand up, there's just standing up. When you walk, there's just walking. Again, there's no dualism. There is no other. Later on, Vasubandhu wrote a bunch of verses, I think 50 verses, to express his deep realization. And I'd like to end this with two of these short verses. He did realize deeply after that, and he actually became a successor. So he said, he wrote, Nothing is born, nothing dies. Nothing to hold on to, nothing to release. Samsara is nirvana. There is nothing to attain. That's one, that's the first one I wanted to share. And I wonder if, you, if we feel that this is uh, disappointing. No, so samsara is nirvana, there is nothing to attain. Do we feel that it is deflating us? Does it chip away at our devotion if we realize, if we recognize that there is nothing to be devoted to or we're not going anywhere else and there's nothing else to attain? How do we feel about that? How can we stay devoted knowing that or hearing that? And then he said, when we realize that afflictions are no other than enlightenment, we can ride the waves of birth and death in peace, traveling in the boat of compassion on the ocean of delusion. Beautiful. Traveling in the boat of compassion on the ocean of delusion, smiling the smile of non-fear. I think enough said. We'll end with that. Thank you.